name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Before we start, I just want to thank everyone for your continued support, leaving reviews on iTunes, Spotify, the engagement on our social media channels in Facebook and Instagram means a lot. Thank you so much. The more that I can reach the layperson, athletes, anybody in general, it's a job done. With that saying, this week we're going to cover subconcussive impacts, what they are, is it a thing, isn't it a thing. It's a very murky topic, okay, so when we get into it, you'll see and understand that it's a topic that is polarizing and divides a lot of opinion. We're saying that another AFL player, Marcus Adams, has retired in Australia due to concussion symptoms and ongoing complications due to previous concussions that he's had. Just out of curiosity, I would actually like to know how professional sporting clubs and bodies actually treat concussions. Uh, their protocols, what they go through behind closed doors. I know given the touchiness of subject that concussion is that they're not going to openly state that. And this isn't Sulcum Bash clubs or anything like that. It's just pure out of my own curiosity because clubs always release rehab updates, educational videos when a player's torn a hamstring, broken bones, the quote-unquote normal injuries of sport. However, concussion seems to be the injury that's hidden behind closed doors that isn't really talked about or how they get back to their normal. And by normal, I mean athletic normal. So you've got two subsets of normals when you're assessing someone. You've got normal as in what a human function can do and should do. And then you've got somebody's athletic normal, which is their pre-injury potential. Anyway... Four minutes in, already sidetracked. Let's get into cleaned up. Okay, so first thing to go into cleaned up is relation to the cue caller that I did last episode. Just after I recorded it, uploaded it, did all the editing, another podcast which I listen to, I love, and I've been listening to it for about five or six years, they done a whole episode on debunking the cue caller. And this was all done from a research perspective. So it wasn't just, we don't like it, and then they started bashing it. These people actually went through all the studies for, all the studies against, the limitations for, limitations against, and provided all the evidence. Really good episode. In saying that, the podcast I'm talking about, the people that run it, they love cycling and athletics. And that's what they usually talk about. This was a standalone episode within the topic of concussion that they went down. Now, the two people that do this, I forget the journalist's name, so I'm apologies, but the other chap on there is Professor Ross Tucker. Now, they run the Science of Sport podcast, really good podcast some great things to do with science and sports. Obviously, it's in the name now. 
the episode of this particular concussion and cue collar talk that they went on. It's called, um, I need to think of it now, Woodpeckers Do Get Concussed and What This Means for the Cue Collar and Brain Injury Prevention. That's the name of the episode. Now, I am no way affiliated with these guys, nor do they know me and probably they really couldn't care. But anyway, and that said, I'll put the episode link down in the show notes. It's about 60 minutes. It just gives a real good indication of concussion research and how to pull apart things in relation to cue collars or other scientific devices and concussion or anything for that matter. Secondly, this leads me to a local one here in Australia. This has got me a little bit worried. The AFL clubs and the presidents here in Australia all met behind closed doors and they actually locked the AFL officials out. And the reason they did this was the boards of these clubs are actually fearing that they're not legally covered if a litigation comes against them. As it's been put forth to the AFL that are we covered by indemnity insurance if someone tries to sue us or take something out against the club? And so far, the AFL has said, no, we don't believe so. Now, they're trying to get insurance if this is the case, and they're actually fearing that a club doctor might get singled out or a board members might get singled out from players that have concussion. Now, I get players wanting to act against governing bodies for concussion and the effects that concussion have. Because, again, as an athlete, we signed up for broken bones, muscle injuries, everything alike, and unfortunately, the odd serious injury that, that comes, which you, it's a freak accident. You, you can't help it. It's going to happen. But we didn't sign up for permanent neurological dysfunction in our 40s, 50s, and 60s. Here is my concern with this anyway. If club doctors and board members are scared that they're the ones going to be targeted at a club level, if someone takes on the club and sues the club, where does this leave the sport as a whole? And by this I mean there's only so much money in the sport like the AFL. Soccer is a little bit different um, just because of the money is a lot more vast. Again, that shouldn't really be a worry of things to come, so I should probably rephrase that. What I mean by this is if everyone keeps taking action against the governing bodies, how long till they do run out of resources, do run out of money, and the actual game itself is affected, or it's enough to actually close the game down? And then if you continually take an action against like the AFL as an example here, and they keep suing the AFL, and the AFL have to keep paying out, like the NFL did, now I'm not too sure what the NFL repercussions were, I haven't looked into it, open transparency there. In order to pay that, they've got to take money from somewhere else, and the first thing they're going to cut is grassroots, and they're going to start taking money from the bottom up. And that really worries me. And then secondly is that if they start suing people on the board and the club doctors, who's actually going to want to work in that environment and put themselves at risk and at the forefront? So 
that's my little bit of a worry about this. Again, with this one, I'll put the link to the actual article in the show notes so you can have a read as well. Anyway, pretty short for cleaned up. Rambled on a little bit there. Let's get back to the show. Subconcussive impacts are one of these things like CTE where it's a little controversial and it depends what camp you sit in and what you personally believe. So you can find research to support your point of view, whether it be good research, bad research. An example of this is that there's growing evidence and strong research to suggest that CTE is caused by repetitive head trauma. And you're well within your rights to say correlation equals causation for this instance. You can always find and rip apart limitations of a study and support your viewpoint. And an example of this in the example with CTE is a lot of the brains that they study with CTE has sample bias, for instance. So how do I explain sample bias and go about this? So you're basically asking people in CTE studies to donate their brain for potential signs of CTE. Yet if a person feels fine and they believe they have no signs or symptoms, why are they going to donate their brain? they're not really going to donate their brains. It's only the people that are suffering these signs and symptoms. Then out of these groups that have actually donated their brains, you have an, a very little control group. In this instance, the control group is the general population that hasn't played sport. And then you're comparing that against the population that has played sport. So that's a bit of a sample bias example that would take place in CTE. So your data collection, for instance, is you've got 90% of X players with the organized sport X organization. They show signs and symptoms of CTE. Whilst the data is not lying, the interpretation needs to be weeded out here. So that's a bit of an example. Then if you look at the actual uh, the tau proteins, the deposits that are found with CTE, this is also found in people with Alzheimer's disease. And it's also been found in people with Alzheimer's disease who didn't play sport. So the consensus in concussion as well also put forth that there's no correlation. So again, where I'm going with this is you can find research to support whatever viewpoint you want to take and you're not wrong. This is an example, it doesn't matter what it's to do with. I've seen on the news passing by earlier today that it was a case about Roundup and poisoning and glyphosates and both camps, the for and against, both said that they had strong research and evidence and each of the other sides were both cherry picking. So it happens in every aspect, it doesn't matter where it is. With research, it's important to know we can only actually test for what we already know to be correct and that has been done in an ethical manner. I'm not going to state with ethics some of the things that I've actually read and the unit that we actually studied for ethics and research proposals because there's some pretty horrific stories and studies out there. But a quick Google search and you'll understand what I mean. Anyway, future episodes. I'm going to, as I've already stated, pull apart a journal article and 
I'm gonna look at some mainstream examples and then also if the one we're doing gets published in time I'll put mine forth that you can rip apart for complete transparency I know the limitations the downfalls what needs to be worked on and everything like that but I don't just want to feel that I'm ripping apart everyone else's work and not my own so if that gets approved in time I'll do it on my own so what I was saying is in a future episode I'll pull apart a journal article we'll go through the research go through the standards of research what's gold standard what a randomized controlled trial is what a systematic review is how to look for the weaknesses and limitations and also what makes a good study and we we'll, won't look at specific topics I'll just try and pick mainstream things but again I'll put my research article in the description in the show notes when we do that just for fuel full transparency sorry um, and then you can also look up my honest thesis online which is published on Murdoch's website if you want to read that and pull that apart by all means go for it again sidetracked my apologies anyway back to the original topic been waffling on a little bit subconcussive impacts so Mainwaring and Atto in 2018 did a systematic review of the evidence so systematic reviewers as we've stated before authors collect all the data with explicit method subsets that critically appraise and analyze all the studies that they've collected that fit uh, inclusion criteria and they consolidate them into one or two questions and objectives and then they try and answer them so Mainwaring's objectives they wanted to determine how subconcussion concussion concussive impacts are characterized in the literature and they also want to identify the direction in the future research and where it was going systematic reviews their gold standard research and they sit upside meta-analysis before we go any further this is highly reliable and as always this journal article will be in the show notes so subconcussive impact more and more research has been published and is coming out supporting the theory of subconcussive impacts there is growing concern that the traumatic blows to the body of the head is having like an accumulation type effect on the brain leading to neurological changes and deficits in order for it to be classed subconcussive the impact cannot relate to any signs or symptoms that you get with concussion so if you get hit in the head or the body and you have that g-force transferred and you feel nauseous or you lose consciousness or you get a bit of a headache that's not subconcussive that's signs and symptoms of a concussion so you're going to be showing no signs and symptoms you're pretty much going to hit you're going to feel fine feel nothing be like yep I'm sweet to go now there's no sweet spot for a lack of a better term for a subconcussive hit if you remember last episode on average it's 70 to 120 G's for a concussion to occur with that said it's safe to say that subconcussive is anything from a normal hit around that 10 G mark up to about that 30 G mark with that 
you had the college athlete studies recorded the 25 Gs was the average tackle off the top of my head, I remember. And then the average soccer headers around 20 Gs approximately. This is also where it gets hard as the argument's been put forth that heading a soccer ball and tackling in the NFL leads to subconcussive, which each of them recording 20 to 25 Gs on average. So again, this is where it starts to get a little bit murky. It's also important to note that the term subconcussive is thrown around and is very inconsistently used throughout the literature, which makes it very difficult to define. And it can also be extremely misleading in what they're saying. So that also makes it really hard. Mainwaring and Atoll again in 2018, they traced the first terms of subconcussion back to Martland's opinion in 1928. If you remember... We discussed Martland, he coined the term punch drunk in boxes. Then you had Pundes and Sheldon in 46. They built on Martland's work. Then again, further in this, you had Cornelius in 73, described dementia polistica. And then it was built on again by Mendes in 95, where he did a review of all the neuropsychology of the athletes and boxes prone to CTE. So... So you can see the research evolves over a long time. It's consistently built upon by other people's work with an original foundational work. Then since 2003, there's been numerous studies and research trying to discuss, prove, disprove subconcussive impacts, and this is where it becomes really grey and murky. As there's been several reviews of the literature and there still remains that clear lack of consensus or clear review on what is a subconcussive or subconcussion as it's been put as well and really defining what the term means it's very unclear thrown around and very ambiguous an example is i can't pronounce his name but trunza etl in 2016 they reported that heading in soccer had no association with neurophysiological impairments and the studies were plagued with bias that preceded it the same year in 2016, you had Rodriguez and Atul. While their study was inconclusive, they had enough evidence to suggest that there was a relationship between heading a soccer ball and decreased brain function. So, same year, two conflicting bits of research. To confuse you even more, 2016, Ballinger and Atul reviewed short-term clinical outcomes of subconcussive head impacts suggested any effect is small to non-existent and I quote here saying exclusive theatrical in construct and must proceed with caution when suggesting brain injury as a result of a subconcussive impact. So three articles in the same year, one on the fence does or doesn't it, one saying it does, one saying it doesn't. So again it's a very grey area. Without ripping apart these articles, this can be due to many reasons. It can be the viewpoint of the camps, it can be the bias of wanting to support their own hypothesis. You don't know. One thing's for sure though, it supports the notion for further research and how much of a grey area this subconcussive impact is and does it build up and cause CTE or are we looking for something that's not there and ultimately where, uh, how do you say this, when you, when you get data 
you can make the data say whatever you want and are we looking at the data and making it say that there is subconcussive impacts we don't know so if i go back to mainwaring's article they found 1966 articles relating to this topic only 56 met the inclusion criteria that they'd set even though they found and concluded that the microstructural deteriorations were associated with repetitive head impacts the evidence was really weak and they could not conclude if it was a direct correlation to negative performance and then they didn't want to draw a correlation causation lastly they come to the conclusion that subconcussive is unclear and it's extremely inconsistently used in the literature and is misleading so the same old adage more research is needed and it's clear as mud basically my personal opinions and thoughts on this part of me thinks that there is an association and high plausibility and the other part of me thinks well hmm, no correlation they can be picking out every single bump scratch bruise that we've received as a baby smack over the noggin falling over as an adult and we're blaming sport we don't know I'm all for player safety and changing rules and accommodating things like this, but I feel like we're starting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Example would be soccer and header in the ball that I agree with. I think it's under 13s in the England where it first come in, not header in the soccer ball. Okay, in under 13s, and they ruled out headering in training and in practice but yet they can do it in game day. They've altered a rule that coming from semi-professional football or soccer background and coaching it, I actually found this detrimental when they brought it in two years ago. We got approached by a technical director when I was over here saying no more heading of the ball during training. And the thing was is not that I did much headering and practicing of headering itself, it was more teaching them the skills of how to head of the ball properly and you getting your body behind it, stiffen your neck, pull your shoulders back and follow through. And the biggest thing I found was those that weren't so used to headering, they'd literally close their eyes and just hope for the best and let the ball hit them on the head and shrug their shoulders at the same time. I actually found it anecdotally a bit of a detriment to the actual playing and the headering but that's another story for another day and goes back to previous episodes of it's okay for researchers to suggest one thing to try and fix a problem but then they're creating two or three other problems wrapping it up subconcussive verdict's still out i guess you can find research that supports your viewpoint the narrative you want to push but always err on the side of caution remember that be smart when playing sports and potential head injuries is it's not worth the risk and our further health and well-being shorter episode this week but subconcussive impacts to answer the questions that we've had on the socials in this podcast is that we basically we don't know there's information for there's information against and it's a real area of watch this space in terms of the next episode that i want to do i want to do for you guys an episode on 
CTE and that would probably take me about 40 minutes to actually talk through but in saying that I don't want to do CTE as I know how to interpret the research and read the papers and relay it but it is not my wheelhouse or my lane that I want to do within concussion and by that I mean I want to reach out and get these people that study CTE and get them to talk to you about it so I'll see how I go I will try and come up with something that is just basically what is CTE how is it diagnosed and then get a guest on to actually go into the weeds of CTE because I want to bring concussion in the space here of here's the research here's you as a an athlete or a person a mum a dad or someone that's had concussion previously and help rehab and get you to a space of living a normal and good quality life that's what I want to do and CTE is pretty much it's across the road it's a byproduct to that um and that's pretty much it for this week so in saying that stay safe and see you all next episode and that concludes today's episode even though i'm a registered chiropractor all the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only this is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician if you believe you're suffering from something similar or the injuries discussed in today's episode please contact your medical practitioner. I am your host, Dr. Reese Granger. Thank you for listening.